You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at year is 1993 and what's this what's this a podcast on a film the movie the movie is a nightmare before christmas everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. And when we do, we are sending them to outer space. That's right. It's going up into space for what reason? We don't know. But Amy, we're in a brand new miniseries all about great musicals. And I'm so excited to talk to you about Musicals, it's not necessarily my favorite type of film. Really? Well, yeah. You're just, you're going to throw that gauntlet down right now. Yeah, like I would. A minute into this episode, gauntlet yeah, down. Yeah, I'm not against musicals. It's just not something that I am drawn to. I've seen many a Broadway musical. I enjoy them. It's just not my, in my top three genres, it's not there. Well, here's what I would say to that. You know what we were talking about in our horror series that we just yes. finished? And you like horror. I right? do. I'm yeah? yes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, horror, we were talking about how horror films are an excuse for like audiences and directors and filmmakers to explore kind of like huge emotions on a blown up scale. Right. You know, like you cannot sleep. You might die. You're in fear. You're screaming. This is what life is for. You're running around. You know, horror gives you that. Musicals kind of do the same thing. They're also the film genre where you get to explore huge emotions on a huge scale, but it's stuff like love and sadness and hope, not fear. So well, it's it, to me, they're very similar. They're like ways of jumping into something bigger than reality to help you like access your feelings and really just externalize, put out, scream, laugh, cry, sing. No, you're totally right, Amy. I, I agree with you. Even though musicals are not in my like, favorite genre of film, when I see one, I kind of fall in love with it. I mean, it's the same thing that happens when I see a Broadway musical. I don't know why I have an aversion to it when I hear the term musical. I'm like, I don't know if I want to go see a musical. But then oftentimes I leave 
and I immediately go to Spotify and listen to the soundtrack. So I, I, I'm a, I'm a mixed bag. I, maybe I am a hidden musical fan. I think I am. Cause as I'm talking about this, I'm like, well, I have a lot of soundtracks to musicals. I, 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 I love going to Broadway shows that are musicals. So I, I, maybe I am, maybe this will be a chance for me to really embrace what I think might be true for me inside that I might be a musical person, even though outwardly, if you ask me just cold on the street, I would say absolutely not. <laughs> wow. So you're really going to face yourself in this whole series. That's a good I, I am. I'm I am. For you. I'm going to be looking at the man in the mirror. And am I in the mirror, a musical fan? We are going to find out. And Amy, there's so many amazing musicals out there. We wanted to put some ground rules down because we want to hear what you want to see as well. But how are we considering the musicals that we want to talk about in this miniseries? Well, there's two major camps, right? So there's the type of musical where it's like, hey, we're a group of people in a band and we're like writing songs and we're performing them. You know, the, the kind of that thing you do type right. of musical. Like the commitments. Yeah. Uh, straight out of Compton. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Yeah. Musicals like that where it's like. Back to the Future. Would you consider that a musical? Yeah. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, but then there's the musicals where when people sing, there's kind of like a, a fantasy element, a buy-in from the audience. Right. You know, like I'm just over here being Joseph Gordon-Levitt walking down the street and suddenly I'm singing and people are singing along with me, stepping into this world. Right. And so I think that's the kind of musical we should focus on for this series, because I think it's, you know, the hardest hurdle and the most worthwhile hurdle, because it's the hurdle that says, do you buy into this world? And to me, that's my favorite question with every movie. Are you going to buy in? Buy in, buy in big. Buy in, we're singing in the mall here. Buy in, we're doing it. By the way, Eric Andre had a musical number in Bad Trip. <laughs> he did. And what I loved about it is when Eric Andre started singing in a mall, everybody looked at him and freaked out. One guy tried to kick him for singing too close to him. That is what <laughs> happens when you bring the actual real world of a musical into real life. But here, we're taking, we're going with the musicals into the world of fantasy. Let me ask you a question, because as we're talking about this, I'm realizing that maybe my aversion to admitting that I like a musical is that it seems so fanciful and big and, and not grounded. But aren't the biggest movies out there the same way? Like Marvel movies are not grounded. I mean, there's a man named Thanos who has a, a gem hand who's, you know, eradicating people on Earth. Or, you know, you watch any, you know, Michael Bay movie or Game of Thrones. These are not grounded things. These are giant movies that are not grounded, but we love. And I wonder why when you break the reality or when you bend the reality in a musical, it feels to critics like, oh, fake or or not genuine. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a, that we all are, you know, having a hard time wrestling with our emotions because it is about being the sloppiest version of yourself, the, the version of yourself that is okay to say, I love you. I hate you. I'm sad. I'm happy. Like it, it is us at our most bare. And I think when we are expressing our emotions, or at least I know whenever I am, it, it is one of the hardest things for me to do because it, it takes down every barrier. No, I think you're right. I think that there's an earnestness to musicals mm -hmm. that makes people uncomfortable. And then they associate that yes. uncomfortable with that sucks. 
You know, the way I that like people make fun of right. theater kids in high school, like you, you, or the way people used to make fun of Anne Hathaway. You try too hard. Therefore, I don't like seeing you try or care, which is such a, I think it's such a lame way to be. Like, I love, right. I love the tryhards who maybe embarrass themselves, but like, wait, why would you even say they embarrass themselves? Try hard, man. Go for it. Do the thing. Do it. I'm proud of you. You're doing what's something scarier than being like Will Smith shooting a bunch of guys in a museum or for some reason in Bad Boys or whatever he did in the last one. It was very boring. Oh, come on. It was not boring. There was a witch. (laughs) The bad guy was a witch. that's right. That was amazing. Uh, I mean, as soon as they started running through red lights, I got mad at that movie. I don't know That was the beginning of the movie. All right. Don't shit on Bad Boys. The the newest one was actually pretty good. Um, And they all are good. But here's the thing. Amy, I think we're we're getting to the root of it. It's about this idea of of trying, of exposing ourselves. And I like that we are starting here. And I guess I'm surprised that you are such a musical fan because I wouldn't peg you as one. Yeah, I, I think I really like vulnerability. I, I, I'm, wow. I mean, weirdly, my favorite kind of musical is the one where the people singing can't even sing that good. You know, like, remember when Les Mis came out and and everyone was making fun of Russell Crowe because they didn't think his voice was that good? Yes. I I thought Russell Crowe was my favorite singer in Les Mis because when somebody is moved to sing and they're doing it, even if their voice cracks, I think that makes it more beautiful because it's saying, "This this is hard for me too. I'm revealing myself. Like the vulnerability in a voice crack. I prefer to somebody who's like, I got a show for you, kiddo, you know? Don't try to sneak in a reference to The Greatest Showman when you're talking about it. You got a show for me because I know that that's a movie that you really have a soft spot for. I do, even though I can admit the huge scenes in it are terrible. I love it. I love that show. Well, I'm excited to to see your emotional vulnerability over this miniseries. And I want to show some emotional vulnerability right now and say thank you to someone who helped out our show in such a giant way. And that person is... uh, Minrose Straussman. Uh, Minrose Straussman helped us get on Wikipedia. This has been a journey, Amy. Our show has not been represented online, and it's been really unfairly uh, ripped down off of Wikipedia. There's been a lot of weird issues about this show, but Minrose uh, is absolutely amazing. She helped us tackle the beast that is wikipedia the right way uh you can follow her on twitter at min the rose and she also has a website uh which is min the she is a uh a freelance writer so if you ever need anything like that joe check her out she's amazing and we really appreciate all the help that she gave us to uh get us online get us online in a, in a way that means something because as because you may not know this, but whenever anyone does research, they only go to Wikipedia. So if your Wikipedia is not there or full of wrong information, I'm dealing with mine right now as we speak, uh, it really is a, does a disservice to you and everything that you do. So Minrose has really helped us out so, so much. I just want to give a big, a big shout out. Maybe I should say, thank you, Minrose. That was beautiful. That was just beautiful. That warmed my heart. All right, Amy, we are starting off with one foot in Halloween and one foot in the upcoming holiday season with a musical that I thought was a genius choice, and it was your choice, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Let's unspool it. That was my best of you, Boogie. 
The year is 1993. Bill Clinton is inaugurated as the 42nd president of the United States. An FBI siege of the Branch Davidians compound in Waco, Texas, ends in 82 casualties. Don't ask, don't tell is the official policy of the U.S. Armed Forces, effectively banning openly gay soldiers from serving. Remarkable firsts include Beanie Babies and bagless vacuum cleaners, which I own and I love. And if any of this sounds familiar, it's because 1993 was a big year for Unspooled. Not only were these hot movies, but these are movies that we actually have done on the show. I'm talking about Groundhog Day, Days and Confused, Schindler's List, Cool Runnings, Jurassic Park, The Fugitive, and now The Nightmare Before Christmas. Amy, this should be our book. We should just take down 1993. What was happening? What was going on? Mojo, man. Mojo in the universe. All right, Amy. The Nightmare Before Christmas. What is it about? Who made it? How was it done? I want to know all the details. All right. Well, The Nightmare Before Christmas, technically billed as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, but technically directed by Henry Selick, who is Burton's fellow co-worker, fellow misfit from their early days together at Disney. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas is the story of Jack Skellington, the pumpkin king of Halloween, who falls in love with Christmas and tries to claim Christmas for himself, even though he doesn't understand Christmas, which brings excitement, confusion, disaster down upon himself, his friends, his love interest Sally that he is oblivious to for most of the movie. Uh, it brings hellfire disaster down on Santa Claus and, of course, the crying children of Earth. Uh, Tim Burton brought this idea to Disney in 1983 when he was the kind of weird guy that they're like, what are you doing here? We don't even understand how to help you draw a fox better for the fox and the hound. You know, all your foxes are creepy and mangy. Um, he brought it to them before he quit. Uh, they were like, oh, we're sort of interested, uh, but they never did anything with it. Until seven years later, when he was a big time Hollywood success, he was finally able to get Disney to make it. Except Burton himself was personally too busy making Batman Returns and Ed Wood. So he was like, here is Henry, who found out only a month before the movie came out that Disney, who was very nervous this movie was going to flop, decided to squeeze the name Tim Burton into the title, thus confusing people forever. Uh, Burton's best-known creative partner, Danny Elfman, wrote the lyrics and music and also sang the part of Jack. He just did the singing, Chris Sarandon did the voice, and Catherine O'Hara did Sally. Take a listen. Listen now, you don't understand. That's not the point of Christmas land. Now pay attention. We pick up an oversized sock and hang it like this on the wall. Oh, yes. Does it still have a foot? Let me see. Let me look. Is it rotted and covered with gook? Um, let me explain. There's no foot inside, but there's candy. Or sometimes it's filled with small toys. Small toys? Do they bite? Do they snap or explode in the sack? Or perhaps they just spring out and scare girls and boys. What a splendid idea. This Christmas sounds fun. I fully endorse it. Let's try it at once. Everyone, please, no, not so fast. There's something here that you don't quite grasp. Nightmare Before Christmas was tentatively put into limited release on October 13th, 1993, and then wide release on October 29th, 1993, where it earned great reviews and made modest money before becoming a cult classic that has gone on to nearly double its original box office in re-releases. Um, I bring up these two release dates because it kind of doesn't really matter which one you use because the same song was number one that entire month. Ooh. And what makes this song perfect is that it is sung by the reigning queen of the holidays, Mariah Carey, who exactly one year later would release All I Want for Christmas is You, which, believe it or not, would not hit number one on the charts itself until 2019. Yes, 25 years later, 
that song finally hit number one on the charts. Also, I bring this up because just this year, literally just two weeks ago, Mariah Carey waited until midnight on Halloween, and then she tweeted a video of herself smashing a jack-o'-lantern and declaring Halloween over, and that her season, Christmas season, is now ascendant. Um, But of course, in 1993, all of that had not yet to come to pass. So the Mariah Carey song that was number one during that Halloween season was the little ditty, Dream Lover. By the way, Paul, when we go back to 1983, Dream Lover will finally get kicked off the charts by Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything for Love. Huge Meatloaf fan here. I had to squeeze that in. Uh, but if you're worried about Mariah Carey, by Christmas Day 1993, she would be back at number one of the charts with the song Hero. She was really dominating that year, man. But yet we never got the Mariah Carey Meatloaf duet that we all wanted that could have really reset everything that we knew about music. I mean, the two of them together, come on. That's what I I want. I would be down for that. You know, I think actually part of the reason I like Meatloaf is for the same reason I like musicals. Is there something in a Meatloaf song that is just so epic and breaks all boundaries of what a normal, tasteful song should sound like on the radio that I'm just like, you went for it, man. I love you forever. Cheers to Jim Steinman, who wrote that. Meatloaf songs are insane. I'm a Meatloaf fan. I grew up in New York. And there's a very interesting piece of trivia about Meatloaf that I have to share with you. I don't know if you know this, but in the song Paradise by the Dashboard Light, there is a section, like a talking section in that song, where someone is narrating Meatloaf trying to get the third base sexually. So they actually got a real play-by-play announcer to do those calls in the song. Now, here's the thing that you may not know. The person they got was this guy, Phil Rizzuto. Phil Rizzuto was a New York legend. He did all the Yankee games. I grew up loving Phil Rizzuto. Just a kindly old man, you know, like kind of like the Harry Carey of New York. And he didn't know what he was recording it for. And he is forever pissed at Meatloaf that Meatloaf put him in a sexual play-by-play. And I just laugh so hard knowing that this kindly old man (laughs) is associated with such a dirty song or at least a perceived dirty song and and it's such a hit that he must have heard it a million times and his family was like phil what are you doing why did you do that uh anyway (laughs) i just love i love that like little piece of weird trivia about meatloaf and phil rizzuto i i did not know that thank you so much well here's something you may not know as well which is this film, to me, is not like a movie that I get. I don't get why people love The Nightmare Before Christmas as much as they do. Or at least that was my opinion before re-watching it with you here for this episode. It has not been one of those things where I'm like, that's one of my favorite Disney movies. I love Tim Burton. I love his early stuff. I had his books of poetry. Um, and I was a fan, but I do think like we talked about in the beginning of the podcast, the musical element of this kind of pushed me off, but everyone that I know, you know, they take over Disney world, they take over the haunted mansion. There's this oogie boogie, uh, night thing that they do at Walt Disney world where everything is 
kind of themed in the idea of Nightmare Before Christmas, or I guess Oogie Boogie hosts the bash. I went this year. It was amazing. But I just have never really bought into all the merch and energy around it because this is a very heavily merched movie. I mean, t-shirts, characters, like this movie has lived on in such a giant, giant way. Yeah, it's lived on in such a giant way that it's surprising that it wasn't that big of a hit when it came out. Yeah. Because the merch is omnipresent today in the year of our Lord, what, like three decades after this movie came out. It, it, it's it, it's kind of inextricable, which makes it, I think, really fascinating to kind of jump back to 1993 and think about how Disney was so nervous that this movie was going to suck and like ruin right. their brand that they didn't even want to release it as a Disney movie. They released it as like a touchstone movie and only later decided like, OK, we'll fold it back into the Disney banner. They were like, we're distancing ourselves from this. We don't know what we've made. It's a movie that's maybe for kids where like. There's skeletons and dead children singing like, oh, God, what have we done? I mean, have you ever heard like any of the first reports from like um, Danny Elfman has one where he's like, I went to a focus group before this movie came out and Disney was losing their minds. Actually, it wasn't a hit at all. Um, It did one preview before it opened. And I think from that preview, Disney basically learned there was no audience for this movie and kids hated it. And so uh, all merchandising was pulled and uh, the marketing suddenly shifted from what was going to be towards a young audience to try to find an adult audience or almost sell it like it was wrong. They, they had no idea what to do with it. The, the preview was a disaster. Um, and I remember being in the elevator and the producer and some of the executives going, well, kids hate it. <laughs> oh, well... It was this kind of like sad feeling in the elevator. And I, I knew it was wrong, but there's nothing you can do. They put it in front of a bunch of kids that were expecting a Disney animation. And obviously, they were expecting something closer to you know, The Lion King or Little Mermaid. And they were getting Nightmare Before Christmas. And, uh, and they didn't know what to do with it. So they just put it out. And it, it died pretty quickly. And um, that's why I, I was really kind of depressed about it because it just disappeared fast. But then it had that rare thing of a second life, which almost never happens in movies. I think this goes back to something we were talking about on the show a little while ago. We don't scare kids anymore. And I really believe that we need to scare kids, make them feel all the emotions. We talked a little bit earlier about you know, having your emotions out there. But right now, everything is so safe in the world of kids entertainment. I mean, you're seeing it. You have like a frontline view of it. Like I have to see all of it once, but you have to see it all multiple times and really get steeped in it. Well, I think the reason why I see it so cleanly and clearly is because I want to show my kids stuff that I really like uh, from when I was a kid. And the difference between a kid's movie when I was my kid's age versus a kid's movie for them right now is really in content. Like everyone is nice. People don't get hurt. There is a, a softness to kids films. So much so that I guarantee you, you could never make home alone. Now you could never have a movie about burglars or parents leaving their kid home alone. And I know they're remaking home alone right now. Uh, I, they did. It's coming out in a month and I'm sure and we can, you know, put money on this, that it's not going to be burglars. It's going to be, you know, 
a misunderstanding. And yes, people will get hurt, but then you'll see them get better. But, you know, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern were scary. And this movie is scary. And I think the reason why it works is because you remember those first scares. So kids who saw this in 1984, they're probably like, oh my God, that was the first time I saw something so crazy like that. And I and I want to embrace it. For me, it was like seeing Ghostbusters the first time. I'm like, oh wow, like there are things in Ghostbusters that were a little bit more scary that made me feel a little bit more adult. But this is kind of like an entry point for goth culture, right? Or is that a crazy thing to say? No, I, I do think that's a very easy thing to say. I mean, I think I would... I don't have the stats, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people's first goth element was like a nightmare before Christmas thing that they bought at Hot Topic, to which I say, right. great, bless you, welcome. You know, like, I mean, Tim Burton himself stood up for a lot of what you're talking about now. Like he said, you know, people forget that kids are intelligent, you know, and that you should scare kids and like they can understand what's happening and that it is a good way of like exercising their demons. And a, a lot of what you're talking about, I think, is really interesting, this kind of evolution of a kid's movie, because you see it even just when you zero in in Disney history. You know, like in the early 80s, right after Burton started getting there, like Disney had been testing out making movies that were scarier for kids. You know, like um, Witch Mountain or uh, The Black Cauldron. They were seeing if kids wanted scares and then those movies didn't do so well. So Disney did this like very quick about face and they're like, okay, 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 okay. We're going to reboot and go back to stuff like making things like The Little Mermaid or, you know, Aladdin or Beauty and the Beast. But and could that- you argue that those movies also weren't very good? Like, I remember loving Escape from Witch Mountain because I thought it was so cool and scary, but I don't know if that's a great movie. Like, this is a great movie that was scary that then kids liked. You know, we're, I think it's hard because sort of like Tom Cruise is like, I'm not going to do Marvel. I'm going to do the uh, dark universe. And it's like, well, people don't want the dark universe. No, people didn't want those movies because they weren't good. Like that, those movies, the Van Helsings and the Mummy were not good movies. So you can't say like people don't want it. It's like if you give them shit and they go, oh, this is shit. You can't go, oh, I guess people don't want to eat. It's like, no, it's this idea where if you don't put the best foot forward, you can't make a decision based on that. Like kids are smart, like to Tim Burton's point. And Little Mermaid is a good movie. So of course it's going to work. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right. I, I, I think it's more just like companies misunderstand maybe what they did. You know, right. so they were they they interpreted it as like kids don't want scares and not like kids don't want these scares. You know, I've been nervous. I loved Black Cauldron when I was little and I haven't seen it in forever. And I'm worried I'll watch it and it won't be good. I, for, I remember being like seven and, st- and st- claiming, claiming it was my favorite uh, Disney movie. That's probably not true today, but I'm worried about letting that go. I think there are certain movies that you should never watch again. For me, that is like Dumb and Dumber. I love Dumb and Dumber so much. I laughed so hard when I saw it the first time. I never want to watch it again, only because I don't think I'll ever have that same response. So there are movies that I don't ever want to go back to. I saw it in the theater when I was a kid, and I was like, nope, never. I don't know why I made that decision, but I like time-capsuling films. We've talked about this a lot on How Did This Get Made, that we want to go back and look at the films that we loved as a kid to see if they are any good but part of the fun is it's getting it's perking something up in you it's it's 
opening a door to something you didn't know. And this movie is so interesting on so many levels because it is, or I guess, you know, uh, Henry Selleck, who is the director of this, even though it's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, has said it is a Halloween movie. And a lot of people consider it a Christmas movie. People don't, it really doesn't fall, I think it can fall in either category, honestly. It is about Halloween creatures longing for something different, which I think is such an interesting idea. It's a very Pixar idea in a way. Like, here's a guy who is very good at his job who's bored with what he's doing and gets excited about doing something else. Like, the idea and the, the thought behind this movie is really adult, and I think that's what I I really connected to on this. It, it felt to me like it had that Pixar emotional weight. Yeah. Although the truth is like most people in Halloween town are super happy. It's really just Jack, right? And it's Jack because he's like the star of it. I mean, his entrance is so funny, right? He like, and he enters this movie, you know, dressed in straw, like he's costumed as somebody else. And then he like reveals his Jack suit. He has kind of like this, this Joker entrance, right? Like he's like a Cirque du Soleil sort of guy wearing the pumpkin head, wearing the straw costume. And then he jumps into that like pool of green bath, kind of like the Joker. And then he emerges in his normal suit, like his behind the scenes suit is what we're watching him wear, the black and white stripes. His Halloween costume is something totally different. I, I just I just like drawing that distinction because like the Jack Skellington we see is not Halloween Jack. It's Jack off-duty Jack. It's off-duty Jack. And off-duty Jack is bored with how people just compliment him all the time. Like, you hear the the congratulations at the end of that first number, and they sound to him really hollow. It's over! We did it! Wasn't it terrifying? What a night! Great Halloween, everybody! I believe it was our most horrible yet! Thank you, everyone! No, thanks to you, Jack, without your brilliant leadership. Not at all, Mayor. You're such a scream, Jack. You're a witch's fondest dream. You made walls fall, Jack. Walls fall. Except for my absolute favorite compliment in this, which I just think should be my catchphrase forevermore. Nice work, Bone Daddy. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> nice work, Bone Daddy. I mean, that's great. Like he, It's also a great compliment. He is kind of a Bone Daddy. But he's working for a mayor who, when you get a glimpse of his Halloween plans, they just include for next year a quote-unquote standard bet. He's bored. I mean, he's even standing in front of a impossible moon, kind of like he's Luke Skywalker. You know, This is our common touchstone for such a powerful way to start a film. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Let me ask you this, because I was watching it, and I was thinking, is this Tim Burton saying, everyone wants me to be weird, scary, you know, goth Tim Burton, and I have so much more that I want to give and show. And it's interesting because this movie comes out before Ed Wood, and Ed Wood is seemingly a departure from what we have seen from Tim Burton in the sense that it's a lot more grounded, it's real. Uh, while the the ideas in it are more about a director trying to make a perfect project, it's not or it doesn't have the 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 Beetlejuice kind of puppetry or the or the goth overtones of even something that we see like in Dark Shadows or something like that. Like I was wondering is, is this is Tim Burton, Jack Skellington saying, ah, oh, yes, I know another great movie. Yes, I know. I'm so interesting. I, I'm the weird one, but I don't want to be the weird one. There's other things I want to do. There's other worlds I want to explore. And like Jack goes and finds this other world and so excited. Like I can bring my weirdness to other things. And I, I really was looking at it through that lens. You know, I think that's actually really interesting when you put it in the context of of him doing Ed Wood, which is such a departure for him. You know, that he's like transitioning to that movie that he's going to try to make Planet of the Apes in Big Fish. And within a decade is basically going to be told, no, 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 go back to the black and white stripes. And then he's going to be black and white stripes guy forever on bigger right. and bigger budgets. The, this is the beginning of his stretch of, of sounding like Jack here. Somewhere deep inside of these bones, an emptiness began to grow. There's something out there far from my home, a longing that I've But there's also, you know, that voice being Danny Elfman. I think this is happening for Danny Elfman at the same time, too, that Danny Elfman had been, you know, the head, the face, the singer of Oingo Boingo for so long. And it's as he's making this music here that he tells Oingo Boingo that he needs to leave the band and that he's also kind of like restless with doing the same thing. And if you don't know that much about Danny Elfman, I mean, he is... I mean, such an interesting musician. And we could probably do a whole podcast just on the songs that he has created. And obviously he has a amazing connection with Tim Burton and that kind of style. I think when you think about Tim Burton, you're probably hearing Danny Elfman music in your head. But he also has done the scores for like Men in Black and Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, Spider-Man. Uh, you know, he he really is an incredibly talented person, but his style, his voice, I think was the most seen or given the most attention to 
with his collaboration with Tim Burton. And the songs in this are amazing. They truly are great songs that after I watch this, I was just humming them all day. They are so weird and specific and bizarre, but catchy. He's a great handle on the material here. The songs have this like tone of like a weird carnival, like this organ kind of grinding, but they are so catchy too. They feel like they shouldn't work as well as they do. And and Elfman said he composed these songs. It was the easiest thing he ever did. He composed these 10 songs like that. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about this pairing of Burton and Elfman because this is the thing I think we touched on. I don't even remember how many gazillions of episodes ago, but I think like this collaboration was really important to me as like a young film viewer. And I think to a lot of people listening because they were so distinct in what they did, especially in these films that they made together at this period, that it was my first real understanding into knowing that a movie was made by certain people. You know, I didn't didn't really get that. Like I'd heard of the name Spielberg, but if you'd asked me what a Spielberg movie looked like, I couldn't have told you back then. But the first director that you could say, what does a Tim Burton movie look like? I was like, oh, I can actually do this for you. I know what a Tim Burton movie looks like. And I know what a Danny Elfman soundtrack sounds like. And they helped me maybe too much, like understand something like a, a tour theory. You know, like I could recognize a filmmaker and his composer's body of work from signifiers. They were like really easy for me to kind of grab onto and understand that like there are specific artists making the movies that I love. That like, yes, I loved Pee Wee at a different time than I loved Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands. And I don't even think I saw all three of those movies knowing when I went to go see them that they were by the same person. But later on, I understood and they fit. It was like seeing a puzzle come together. And so I do think that like Tim Burton, I'm going to, I'm going to phrase it in like a way that sounds patronizing, but I don't mean it to, that he is kind of like, you know, auteur theory for kids, auteur theory for dummies, like auteur theory 101, like showing you that there are people behind the films, that films aren't just a VHS tape that your parents put into a box for you. I do agree with that. And I also feel like Tim Burton becomes like the McDonald's of an idea because There's a very interesting argument at play in this entire film. Whose film is it? Is it Henry Selleck's film or is it Tim Burton's film? Henry Selleck will say, you know, he was done dirty by this movie by putting Tim Burton's name in front of it. It took away from all the work that he did. He said Tim Burton only visited for like eight days out of the two year production of this film. And Tim Burton will say, well, I created this. I wrote the poem it was based on. And then Henry Selleck will say, yeah, well, you created three characters, Jack, Zero, and Santa. The other characters, that was made up for the film. But because it was maybe in the style of what we are used to seeing Tim Burton as, like the Beetlejuice Tim Burton, the, you know, like I said, the Melancholy Oyster Boy, that book, like it had a vibe, like he had an aesthetic you will never think of this movie as a Henry Selleck movie. You will think of it as a Tim Burton movie. So I think it's interesting to have this idea, this movie be so closely associated with an auteur, but yet someone else was kind of puppeting it, like very much like the puppets in this film. I mean, moving it in a different way, creating all these characters. And obviously Tim Burton's presence is there, but how much of it, is there and how much of it is not there. When you only think about it 
from the sense of Tim Burton created three of the characters, not even Sally, you know, not even Oogie Boogie. What, well, what's there? You know, it, 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 it's a poem to a film with a score is very different. And, and, I, and I did find it interesting that I, I've, I bet Tim Burton has this kind of push-pull because someone brought to life his ideas but maybe he didn't see it exactly the same way, but yet then it's fully associated with him because he also ends his collaboration with Danny Elfman after this. He, he goes away from Danny Elfman for Ed Wood uh, and they, they return at a certain point. But I wonder if this was a, a, a battle going on behind the scenes as somebody who is, you know, given this role, you are the vision of this movie. I think Steven Spielberg gets put into this position a lot. Steven Spielberg's amazing stories. Is it his amazing stories or is his name just saying, you know, I give you my stamp of approval. It's a hard thing to separate. It's the way I think a lot of people think that Judd Apatow directs every one of those Judd Apatow movies. It's like, oh yeah, who directed Superbad? Oh, Judd Apatow. Who directed Bridesmaids? Judd Apatow. Those are, that's patently false. Those are not the people who directed those movies. Um, But I think people just assume, oh, from the mind of, from the producer of, and then you don't actually go and go, oh, that's actually, you know, Greg Matola. That's actually Paul Feig. No, I agree. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, this feels like one of those Solomonic things where the, the more you research the history of the making of this movie, almost the harder it gets to figure out who really gets all of the credit. Like, I would love to figure out a way to give Henry Selleck tons of credit for perfectly enacting somebody else's vision that he also could identify with. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because like he did it so well. It's almost like Henry Selleck did such a good job capturing Tim Burton's spirit, a person that he had known for like over 10 years at this point, that it hurt him in the end, you know, because like he did so great that you almost don't see the Henry Selleck in here because we knew Tim Burton's brain better, I guess. It's like we knew the, we knew the contours of Tim Burton's brain so did he. He mapped it. And then we like forgot that he was there, which is not fair to Henry Selleck. But no, also, I, mean, I mean, and so Henry Selleck has done some amazing work, too. If you don't know the name right off the bat, you know, he did Coraline, um, Monkey Bone, James and the Giant Peach. So obviously they work together again, uh, Tim Burton and Henry Selleck. But it is yeah. interesting because the bigger name often takes up most of the space. Yeah. Well, and don't forget. Henry Selleck did some da, 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 Pillsbury Doughboy commercials right before this. Oh my gosh, that was him. I did not know that. The new Grand's Biscuits. They're light. They're fluffy. They're big. Oh, big? Oh, they're huge. In fact, they're the biggest biscuit Pillsbury's ever made. New Grand's Biscuits. Like we said, they're big. And light. Yeah, I mean, maybe let's take a step back then and talk about kind of when they met and what was happening. Because, yes, they're at Disney at this weird kind of transitional period for Disney where the people that they're working with are telling Tim Burton that the foxes he's drawing for the fox and the hound look like roadkill. And he's kind of losing his mind. And I think Selig is also really unhappy. They're the weirdos that they're kind of brought in, like, they're the CalArts kind of strange people that Disney is like, we'll fold you in. What can we do with you? Let's see what we can do, what we can take from your brain almost to use you. And then honestly taking a lot of their work and throwing it in the trash because Disney was worried about it. You know, they like 
for a while they had Tim Burton working on the Black Cauldron, you know, and he was right. drawing all sorts of weird stuff. And Disney was like, I'm not going to use it. And Tim Burton was like, I'm losing my mind and I'm depressed and I'm sleeping in the closet at Disney and nothing, none of my art is getting appreciated. And I think Selleck was a guy from what I understand, like identified with that. It was like, yeah, I feel you. This is crazy over here. Um, then when and by I, the way, Disney has a history here of doing this across the board. I mean, this is the same story that we hear with John Lasseter, who was obsessed with computer animation. And Disney's like, ah, you know, you can make your brave little toaster, but we don't, we don't know. And, and I think what we're really wrestling with is something here where it's always like the new idea hasn't been accepted yet. So no one wants to back it. And this is, you know, why we see a lot of bad reviews for movies that become iconic because it just might've been the first of something that sets a tone. But anyway, I do think it's interesting that Disney was sitting on top of these amazing animators that are going to be changing the game of feature films and animation, but yet almost stifled them to silence. But anyway, tell me how, uh, continue to tell me how they met. Well, I was going to say like Selleck actually, when Nightmare comes out in 1993, talks about John Lasseter. You know, he gives an interview where he sounds a little frustrated. He says, this is his quote, Disney wants to gobble up the rest of the world. They're doing a film with Pixar, which is a company that does computer films with John Lasseter. Uh, and he's saying that because nobody knows who Pixar really is going to be yet. And Selig says, they've been very hard on them, insisting on making things obvious and working them over and over. So, yeah, I mean, I, I love this insight into a world where we didn't know who Pixar was and what Pixar was going to be. But Selig knew because he did, insisted on making Nightmare Before Christmas as far away from Disney as he could, like by going to San Francisco instead of doing it here because he didn't want Disney coming over all the time and telling him what to do with this weird film that they're already super nervous about. And that's how he got to know like the Pixar team and and he could identify with them. They were both these like outposts figuring out how they could make the art they wanted to do in a world where Disney, you know, owned everything. Um, and the reason they're even making this film with Disney is because since Burton was working at Disney when he came up with the idea, the story is that he had, he claims like 108 temperature fever. Okay. He went to sleep. He was hallucinating. He had this crazy dream of seeing all of these characters that kind of like came out of his subconscious. And what's kind of stewing in Tim Burton at this time is, you know, like he's such an LA kid. He's such a, he's a Burbank kid, which I think is even a more specific thing. Some of my favorite people on this planet are Burbank kids, but right. being like a Burbank kid meant that when he grew up in, in Burbank, that he felt like nothing ever changed in life and that everything was always kind of the same. And the only way in Southern California to tell one day from another is when the holidays came in. So since the weather never changed, the only thing he looked forward to is like when Halloween would start and suddenly he said life had suddenly like, quote, some sort of texture and then Christmas would come. And so there'd be just nothing but decorations for three months. And it was like his favorite time of the year. I mean, when he started to become a young artist, like the local storefronts in Burbank would even pay him money to paint like holiday stuff on their windows, you know, because he was this artist who loved holidays. I mean, you, you can see this in Burton's films, like he combines Christmas and Halloween so much. He, I mean, he has like the kind of Christmas chills the, in Batman Returns. You know, there's parts of Batman Returns that look so much like the nightmare visions here. Edward Scissorhands, another kind of spooky movie with like a huge Christmas subtext. And so he just loves this mix. He brought it to Disney. He brought this poem, which is a really long poem. I thought maybe I'll read it. And I was like, oh, it's way too long. I was um, going to read it as well. And I was like, ah, oh, can we fit it in? I don't know. It, it's it is, so long. It's long. And I think you could easily find it in a bookstore. 
can find it online. It's very easy. You can check it out. It's there. But when you work for Disney, you know, you sign this thing when you work there. And it says that any thoughts you have, I'll actually even use Burton's quote for this quote, any thoughts you have during your employment are owned by the thought police. You sign your soul away in blood when you work there. They own your firstborn. And so years later, when he came to them and said, can I have a Nightmare Before Christmas back? Can I make this movie? They said, no. And they said, we'll only make this movie if you make it here for us. You can't have your idea back. Wow. Yeah. So that's a lot of how this started. Um, Is Burton making this film for Disney, who wanted to be in the Tim Burton business, but was like, we're doing The Little Mermaid. This is terrifying. Right. And so having to come up with these negotiations. And of course, like Danny Elfman gets involved in these negotiations as they're coming up with everything. Because basically how the film starts to congeal is that Burton meets with Elfman and he meets with him in like tiny chunks, you know? So he meets with him and he's like, okay, I have an idea for what I think the next scene should be. And he gives him some sort of plot ideas. And as he's talking to Elfman, he's doing like some sketches of maybe what he thinks the film should look like. And then Elfman, because he's in the same mindset of feeling really restless, is like, got it, goes away, writes a song that fits that mood that Elfman is describing. And then when they have their like 10 songs... They have them in order, and those 10 songs are what gets used to make the script. But, Interesting. Yeah. And, and and one of the things that Elfman told Disney is he was like, I'm not going to do anything like part of your world. You know, I don't want to do like some sort of pop song, you know, that you fold into your world of like cute charmers that can maybe hit on hit the hit the song charts. Like, I don't want to do that. No pop songs. You're not going to get a pop ballad out of this is what he tells Disney. And his influences, he was going to jump much further back to like Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gilbert and Sullivan and do kind of that like twisted, broken klezmer sound that I love in this movie. Yeah, You know, that he wanted to like have everything sound fresh, but traditional. And what he would do as he was writing these songs is he would sing them to his daughter. Um, He has um, to his daughter, Molly. And he said, if he could sing a song to his daughter, Molly, and she could sing the melody back, he knew that it was good. Because he said, if the if the melodies are good and they stick in your head, then I know that I have written something excellent. And I wanted to point that out because I love Daughter Power. That's what happened with Johnny Depp being cast in um, Nightmare on Elm Street last week. You know, these smart guys listening to their brilliant daughters who have ideas that will wind up actually resulting in like Johnny Depp existing and then Edward ha- Scissorhands existing and and the world that we live in today. I love that he tested these songs out on his daughter because these sound like songs that you might hear your kid making up. They have this weird rhythm to them. You can also copy them. You know, they're not as big and expansive as maybe something that was in like a Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of production, but they still have this rhythm that you can get. It's almost like a Broadway musical with training wheels on because it sounds like it's coming from the voices of people in Arrested Development. They are, even though this is a musical, they are not singers. They're not presenting like this is the best way to do these songs. And yes, there are a few exceptions to that. But I, I, I feel like when I think about a lot of them, they have this child sing-songy uh, energy to them. Yeah, yeah, actually. I'm thinking about, you know, my daily life. <laughs> and yeah. my my boyfriend and I sing to each other all the time. You know, we're kind of like two, two birds. Um Neither one of us, I would say, are great singers, but what we actually sing a lot 
is songs from A Nightmare Before Christmas. Honestly, just because they're running in the back of your head so constantly. And they're so kind of creaky in the corners and and fun that you can just make up your own lyrics constantly. So, I mean, I mean it's, it's like dumb stuff. You know, we're just like making breakfast. It's like, in this house, we make yes. toast. Completely innate, but like, it all fits with this. Like, there's a there's something in Nightmare Before Christmas where if you like the songs, you kind of get an ownership of them. They can become your songs very easily. You can make up your own lyrics to them immediately, you know? Yeah. By the way, our whole Nightmare Before Christmas thing started because um, our very first Christmas together, we drove down to Tijuana because, you know, Tijuana mm-hmm. invented the Caesar salad. Greatest place to go if you just want to, like, eat Did some delicious food. Did not know that. Food. Oh, oh, bro. Road trip. Let's go. Um, but while we were in our hotel in Tijuana, uh, we turned on the TV and they were showing A Nightmare Before Christmas in Spanish, which then just like set the course for the entire rest of our relationship. And if you have never seen Nightmare Before Christmas in Spanish, you just have to hear this. Well, you could put on the subtitles. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. What you're talking about, this difference between sort of like glossy and creaky is what I love about this film because it kind of extends the whole way through. Like it looks creaky, you know, there's just textures on everything, you know, scuffs and bumps. The whole idea of a film made with stop motion innovation, like a feature film, you know, this hadn't happened before Nightmare Before Christmas. Really? A feature length film like this. Oh, no. Like, yeah, there'd been like the Christmas specials that, of course, Tim Burton like loved and was really influenced by and Selleck. Um, But to do something that this huge uh, in stop motion hadn't happened. And stop motion has that quality to it where when you watch people, you know, walk and move in their strange kind of unfurling motions, you know, like the teetering skinny legs that Jack Skeleton has that just don't seem like that, that, that could only exist in stop motion. Yeah, that tangibility that everything has. I think the imperfections of, say, stop motion versus like perfectly computer animated 3D whatevers make you love the stop motion more. Do you feel that way? Like, I feel I feel like I want to hug stop motion and I almost never feel like I want to hug an animated cartoon. No, absolutely. You want to be there. There's something so tactile about it. And it's. I think calls back to the way that we play as children. Like this whole movie feels like the influence of children. I I talk about this a lot when I talk about James Wan directing Aquaman, because I feel like James Wan directing Aquaman was like, what does a kid who loves Aquaman want to see? I want to see an octopus playing drums, but the drums are on fire. Like, it's just like some of the things are just visually cool. And it's the way that we would play, you know, with our toys. And, And when you see stop motion, it is... I grew up at least playing with a lot of action figures and play sets, whether it's He-Man or G.I. Joe or Mask, you know, and I would, you know, Star Wars, of course. And you have these play sets and you bring different characters in. And I feel like that this looks like that. It looks like those play sets that we all had. And, and it makes you feel like, so somebody actually did this. This is what I did. I mean, I tried to do that when I was a kid too. stop motion. I just didn't have the patience to sit there for nine months. You know, uh, my wife worked on this. Uh, Ardman show. And, you know, the amount of work that goes into stop motion animation is, I mean, it's exhaustive. They they did years on this movie to get an hour and 20 minute film. And some of it, 
even is some animation on it, like Oogie Boogie in the Moon. You know, that is animation, the first kind of ways that we see things. Like they're, they're mixing some animation and stop motion animation. What I admire so much about the way this film is put together is that I think in every single frame of the film, there is something bizarre to be looking at in the Mm -hmm. background. Like all of the details in this movie feel passionately thought out. You know, that when you uh, raise the alarm, the alarm is going to be like a metal screaming cat. You know, that when you ring a doorbell, the doorbell is going to be a spider, that the vampires are hiding under parasols. You know, there's, there's just so much energy into every little bit of this movie where they're really thinking about like, how can they make it clever? How can they like add magic to it? And I think that's part of the rewatchability about it is every time I watch this movie, I notice a new fun detail that I wouldn't have seen before because they spent so long making it, that they had time to think about every single element. And when you talk about the direction of it, I mean, what Selig is doing here, because they had some new technology that didn't exist before. You know, they had these kind of like computerized miniature cameras that they could put on tracks mm-hmm. so that they didn't have to do a stop motion animation film where like the camera has to stay perfectly steady on a tripod because you can't risk bumping it. Because if you bump it, then like Rudolph's leg will be crooked forevermore. You'll never get it exactly in the right place again. Because of the computers, they're able to do stuff with stop motion that I find like amazing, that the camera is able to have a personality where the camera is like high on frog's breath. It kind of sways back and forth and gets dizzy or the camera gets to be inside of Santa's POV and gets to be kind of disoriented and wondering what's happening when he gets kidnapped, that the camera swoops in a way that you don't see with stop motion animation at this time. Because it's like a perfect moment for technology and this old-fashioned art form to come together. And that's all Selig. You know, that's Selig and his camera team figuring out how to make this camera move to capture the story. It had it had just these little details. Like when Sally looks at um, Jack, her pupils kind of like focus and dilate and, and, and sharpen on him. Like that's amazing to me to have just even that, that detailed life to, be, to take the time to do that with stop motion animation. Yeah, I think what you're saying is there's like a little bit of love in watching these characters because they have been touched by hand, even though animation in general is a arduous process where you're drawing every frame. But this these creatures have literally been touched and they're all manipulated in a way. And I think, you know, it's such a old school way of doing things, but like the way that we love seeing Yoda as a puppet versus Yoda as CGI, it brings you in to the world and the characters and you forgive things and the weirdness and the things that don't fit right actually make it more perfect because we're used to a world where everything is too smooth. And we've seen that time and time again with, you know, again, CGI, like it just makes it too perfect. And I think our eyes need to see it not be 100% right. Like, what is it? The uncanny valley, right? Like that idea that sometimes it just, it it upsets you when it looks too good. Well, yeah. I mean, think about what animation is. Like, of all of our art forms, animation is by nature, like naturally the most physically expressionist because like people are creating and drawing and able to do things that you just completely would be impossible with like human actors. You know, I I like actually talking about this film 
um, after our horror series because we had just did Caligari. And, you know, Caligari is such a huge influence on all of Burton's look, you know, the kind of impossibly like teetering stairs and crooked lines. And with animation, you're able to capture emotions that you can't do here with like the backdrops and the setting and the entire world because... You could, well, you kind of have to, because like the characters that they created, I mean, Jack Skellington, he doesn't even have eyes. Like half the characters in this movie don't even have eyes. Their eyes are like shown, sewn shut or they're just like big black holes. And if I mean, Disney wanted Jack to have eyes. They fought for him to have eyes and it just didn't, they didn't cave on it. And what a smart move, you know, because... Very rarely do you see a skeleton without eyes. Of course he wouldn't have eyes. He's a skeleton. That's what we know him to be. You know, he wouldn't have eyeballs. Yeah, when he gets those like Christmas lights in front of his eyes, it looks terrifying. You know, yeah. they're kind of like lighting up his dark sockets. But think about that. Like eyes, you know, window to the soul, blah, blah, blah. And you take that away from your lead character. You have to externalize his soul in other ways through like his songs, like through his digging and through this like crazy landscape that has all of the personality that that fills up this film. So you never feel like the lack of eyeball. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Well, what do you think about what this movie is saying in regards to staying in your own lane? We talked about this before, like, because obviously what we know about Jack, like you said, like we see that his soul is a little bit empty. Like he can do something so well, but he doesn't feel fulfilled by it. And he goes off on this journey to be fulfilled and he fails. He destroys Christmas. Right. Like he he's not able to do it and it has to be fixed. So is this movie telling kids like or people just be happy being successful in what you do? Don't worry about doing everything or don't worry about being happy. I mean, I was looking at that end and going, well, what what is the takeaway? Like, what is the takeaway? Like, I get story wise. He thinks he can do something. He can't do it. He goes the wrong way about doing it. but. But the end result is he's back and I guess relieved. I don't know. I, like what what do you think the the moral of the story is? It is a little weird, right? Because I get yeah. I get touchy about films that say how you were born is who you are forevermore. Congratulations, right. Ray. You did have like royal parents after all. I mean, I think right. all that stuff is so lame. And to me, it kills any sense of 
identification with a character because, right. well, like I'm not born special. So great. Good for you. Go on, have fun. Like I'm not as invested if I know that you were born to do a thing, because if you're born to do it, well, then you're going to do it like, right. Or the movie won't exist in the first place. I mean, maybe there's a movie where somebody's born to do something and then they just refuse and then it never happens. But usually they wind up doing the thing that they were born to do. So like, who cares? Right. Yeah. And I think that there's something here in the misunderstanding, like adding that element of the fact that he can love a thing and not get it, I think makes it interesting. It's not that he's necessarily bad at Christmas. Really, it's that he doesn't understand Christmas or it's not that he's not trying to be good at Christmas. He wants to be good at Christmas. He just doesn't quite get Christmas. And he knows that. And he has that whole song right here. He is like trying to grapple with it, trying to understand it. And he just realizes he can't that he's maybe he's just trying too hard and he should just say fuck it and do a Christmas anyway. So hard to put my bony finger on. Or perhaps it's really not as deep as I've been led to think. Am I trying much too hard? Of course, I've been too close to see. The answer is right in front of me. Right in front of me. It's simple, really. Very clear, like music drifting in the air. Invisible, but everywhere. Just because I cannot see it doesn't mean I can't believe it. You know, I think this Christmas thing is not as tricky as it seems. And why should they have all the fun? It should belong to anyone. Not anyone, in fact, but me. Why, I can make a Christmas tree. And there's no reason I can find I couldn't handle Christmas time. I bet I could improve it, too. And that's exactly what I'll do. (laughs) And, you know, I think that that dimension is more interesting than the way the FOMO's, you know, pitched. Like when uh, when it was announced that this movie was going to be made like in 1991, the way they described it was that it was about a skeleton who's jealous that Christmas gets more attention. Mm. But that's not it. It's not that he's jealous of Christmas getting more attention. He doesn't really even know about Christmas. Yeah. He just loves it. And I love the idea of loving something that you don't understand in that love still being okay because at least that's what maybe that's how they reconcile it is like but i guess i mean i was thinking like it's not even that he loves christmas he loves difference right he comes into this world not knowing anything about it he like that i love that song like look at this look at this like he's seeing a different world it's it's as if in many ways, not to kind of always bring it back to coming of age, but you leave your house to go to college or you go on a vacation to a place that's unlike where you've ever been or even a friend's house. Look how they have dinner. Look how they watch TV. Look at what they have in there. Like, it's this fascination with the difference and maybe saying to yourself, wow, I, I want I want this. And maybe and the difference here is. Well, just because you like something doesn't mean you should just steal it. And that's what he is doing. Like, but it also doesn't feel like he's allowed to be in that world after this movie. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a weird thing. It's like, oh, he found his home. He found something different. But maybe did he just need a vacation? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what the moral is. It is weird, right? Like, yeah. Like, Jack is a, he's a guy looking for novelty. And there is kind yeah. of that like setup where he's so busy looking for novelty that he doesn't realize that the girl literally next door is like the perfect girl for him. You know, right. like, he has to go and get shot by missiles in order to appreciate the things that he's oblivious to, like literally the cute girl who like adores him. Who also is being kept 
under lock and key. She's not able to experience the joy of Halloween. Like she's literally poisoning her creator, her Frankenstein, to get out of the house and celebrate with everybody else. Like she also is longing to to be a part of something bigger, right? And whether it's Jack being burdened by being the face of Halloween or it's Sally being burdened by essentially being a slave to her father, this creation of her father, they're both being told they can't experience joy. So there is something about these two people who are experiencing the exact same emotion coming together that make them even stronger. Actually, did you see that just a couple of weeks ago, Billie Eilish sang the part of Sally? I did. I just saw that um, uh, at the Hollywood Bowl or one of the big uh, events here on Halloween night. I almost went uh, to see it. And it, they do this, I think every year they do these, you know, beautiful concert renditions of this uh, of this movie. And they always get amazing guests. And Billie Eilish actually is a perfect uh, Sally, I think. Yeah, she sounds perfect. I mean, here, take a listen. I think your point is true about, you know, them being on these parallel journeys. And I have to say how much I love her character design that, you know, the fact that she's like this Frankenstein kind of sewed together stuff with dead leaves woman becomes such a part of the movie. Like how she's drawn is really allows her to do stuff, you know, that she can like untie her arms and escape and do this over here and that her arm will still punch somebody from behind and she can separate her leg, you know, that, her character design is really useful and creative and she just embraces it as who she is. I think that's what I'm trying to say. The way that she looks at her kind of sewn together features and she's not like, I'm a Frankenstein monster. I'm so sad about it. She's like, this is pretty cool what I can do. I just accept it as who I am. And I think that there's something in that lens of this whole city full of like creeps and dead babies and like bizarre people loving themselves for who they are. But actually, not now that I'm saying that out loud, not having to sing about it, not having to be like, I love myself and I'm perfect, which is also, I think, like the big kid movie theme right now that's so tedious. Yeah. They but, just you know, are. They just are. They're like, we're weird. And so it goes. And we don't even have to defend it because why defend a thing that you just know is naturally true, that we're great? Well, it's the difference between changing yourself and changing the world in which you live in, right? Which I think is an idea that's not often explored. Like this idea is about finding joy outside of the house that you are in, in many ways. Like, how do you find that joy? It's not about how do I become a different person? Like Jack doesn't want to become a different person. He wants to do something different. Sally doesn't want to become a different person. She just wants to be amongst other people, have these other relationships and this love. And I think that is something that you don't see a lot in kids' movies because I think the moral of a lot of kids' movies are 
I want to change. I want to be the rock star. I want to be the cool kid. I want to, you know, take my glasses off and shake my hair out and be the most attractive girl in high school. But the but then they realize, no, I need to be loved for who I actually am. These characters are not changing who they are. They just want to experience the world. It's like they want to go abroad. They want to have a life. They don't want to be defined by the town they grew up in or the people that raised them. And that to me is such an adult theme that I think is never really explored because that is very like personal and small. You know, it it, it is embracing wanderlust. It's embracing this idea of of exploring and and challenging yourself to be open to different things. You know, when you put it that way, now this film feels like it has a lot in common with something like It's a Wonderful Life, where, you know... Our, but he our, wishes to be different. He wishes his life was different. He does, but he doesn't wish that he was different. He just wishes he'd hmm. had a chance to leave his town. But he doesn't realize how important he is to that town until he gets to see how it would have played out. And in a weird way, It's a Wonderful Life says, just be happy that you're here because if you were to leave, you would destroy it. So even though you're unhappy, you are making some good effects on people's lives. <laughs> I mean, it's a dark idea too. Like here, like, and that's what we're saying. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're unhappy, but truthfully, it's helping other people. It's a weird, it's, it's a weird moral. It's a very like old point of view. Um, like don't leave. Don't leave. You may not be happy, but it's it's okay. Like, I'm not telling you why, but it's like saying like, yes, you're not happy, but you are a cog in the greater machine. And that maybe is it. It's like the machine is bigger than the individual. I think that is true in It's a Wonderful Life. I think that is kind of true here. Like, no, just stay in the machine. Stay in the machine. Don't, don't go outside of the machine. Because once you go outside of the machine, then the machine breaks. But it's like, well, I don't want to just be a cog. I want to can I be in a different machine? Can I make my own machine? Do I need to be a machine? Like there is something about this that's a very like, uh, I mean, is it communism? Is that like, you know, like the, <laughs> but like, you know, to a certain degree, like, well, no, we all do this together. We are all one. We are not individuals. I think that's why that song towards the end, the one that Jack sings in the cemetery after he's, you know, been shot down from the sky, mm -hmm. collapsed into like the graveyard angel's arms. That's why I think that song is so pivotal because that song really tries and I think succeeds in making this kind of difficult plot transition where he starts off that song kind of singing like a song of shame and like humiliation, you know, like, what have I done? Yeah, I think there's that line, like, what have I done? Like, I want to find a deep cave to hide in, you know, and only come out when I'm like dust and black, you know, and just like, self-pity. There's so much self-pity at the beginning of, of that song. And then he switches into that, a different emotion of like anger. Like they didn't even see or appreciate what I was trying to do. These humans who are so like betrayed, they think by me. And then the anger turns into pride. And he goes through these like three emotions of like, I pity myself. I'm angry they didn't get me, but you know what? I scared them. And I'm very proud how much I scared those people who made me feel like a failure. And then he's like, joyful. You know, you hear that voice I hear. He's like, what the heck? What the heck? I went and did my best. And my God, I really tasted something swell. And for a moment, why I even do 
first I left some stories they can tell I did And for the first time since I don't remember when I felt just like my old bony self again And I jerked the Pumpkin King That's right I am the Pumpkin King <laughs> I mean, that song is doing so much work. And when you list the songs of what matters here, you know, the ones that I love, this would be like down on the list. You know, I forget about this song because it's yeah, I do catchy. too. But the whole movie is in this song of like finding this, I would say maybe even a little bit malicious pride in like ruining Christmas for other other people right. for a minute before he releases Santa. But um, But like he realizes he was so good at scaring people even on accident, that it makes him enjoy scaring people again. So I guess it's like falling back in love with your own talent more than anything. He's not like, I have to go back to Halloween town because it will collapse without me. He's like, I am actually good at what I do. And I see that again. Like, that's it. Because he gets all these compliments at the beginning besides yeah. bone daddy that make him feel kind of like whatever. But when he can really compliment himself, like that matters to him. And maybe the idea is... You don't have to leave to bring something different and special to the world in which you inhabit. Because that's what kind of happens at the end. Like Santa brings Christmas to Halloween Town. He makes it snow. And there is a world of maybe an absolute is not always the right choice. You don't have to be all of that. You don't have to replace Santa, but you can maybe bring a little bit of Santa into your world. You can bring a little bit of, you know, you don't have to leave your town. You don't have to move to France because you loved going there the one time that you went to Paris, but you can bring a little Paris into your world. Again, I I think it's not a mixed message, but I think it's like a very adult message of, but don't leave, but don't do anything, but don't really get into your dreams, but you can bring a little bit of your dreams that you could bring back a little Eiffel Tower and you could put it on your, on your kitchen counter and that will have Paris there. Is it the same? No, but you get it. Like, anyway, I, I know I'm wrestling in this bigger idea because it's, it, it really is about experiencing the joy of Christmas, right? And how these creatures in the Halloween world, they live in this kind of ghoulish nightmare world all the time and they don't get any change of seasons, any, any new influx of anything. And, and I guess maybe what they needed was this. And maybe the idea is, I'll put it to marriage, right? The idea or relationships. Sometimes in a relationship, you might feel like, oh, I want to get out. There's something, there's a, there's a, there's a choice over here that I want to make. There's a thing I want to do over here. But if you, if you actually commit to where you are and try to make the world that you're in better or the relationship that you're in better, you will actually then you will find all that joy. Like it's not maybe, maybe joy isn't always just to be found outward. Sometimes it's about a little bit of internal work as well. Like the joy of settling, the joy of understanding, like I, yes, this is where I am. How can I make this better? Instead of just saying, cut bait, let me start over again. That's true. Because whatever I like it is, that. It, it feels more interior. Yeah, it doesn't feel like settling it, He's not settling. Yeah, yeah but it, yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, what is, what is that thing? Like, it's like, oh, well, instead of leaving everyone, how can I make, how can I be a productive person in the world that I live in? How can I make everyone around me better? How can I bring joy to everyone instead of just to me? So maybe it's less selfish. I don't know. That's where I was really caught on this movie. And I think why I grew to love it so much. I also will say that with the exception of Catherine O'Hara, 
who plays Sally. The voices here are not of people that we know. It's it's not The Rock. It's not, you know, these iconic voices. And I think that these people are amazingly cast. Chris Sarandon does the talking voice of Jack Skellington and Danny Elfman does the singing voice. Um, but because they're not immediate recognizable, and I think that's the way that a lot of Disney movies of the time were done, like, you know, Little Mermaid and Aladdin. It allows you to really put yourself in their shoes. Right now, I think when you look at like a poster for, you know, whatever it is, Secret Life of Pets or, you know, um, whatever the next big animated movie is, it, it you just see a list of names. Okay, I know all these names. I'm going to feel like I can get I can get on board. I Kim Kardashian's in it. I'm on board. Let's go. You know, um, whereas I think it's so refreshing and fun to just let these voices be new characters. It's not, it's not Will Smith playing a shark. It is the shark. We're watching the shark. And there's a connection there that I think is, you know, these are great character actors too. I mean, uh, was it William Hickey? Did Dr. Finkelstein, mm-hmm. you know, who is, you know, he's been great in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And uh, I'm sure Glenn you know, Shaddix as the mayor, I think, is so fantastic. So uh, great. There and I love people that, that you know mayor doesn't Beatles, like so. wind up pulling, like that there, that there was like a version of the story where they thought Dr. Finkelstein would be revealed as like the ultimate villain. Yes. You know? Like the. They shot that feature. ending. Yeah. And I respect that it's not that. that Oogie Boogie is just doing what Oogie Boogie wants to do too. There's not like any sort of big twist or betrayal. Like the plot is not. I don't even think Oogie Boogie's a bad guy. No, he's just being Oogie Boogie, which, you know, by the way, like if you are a person who's like a huge nightmare before Christmas ahead and you have not explored much of the world of like the old classic, like Fleischer Betty Boop cartoons, I just think you're going to absolutely love them. And you have such an exciting world ahead of you to explore. Um, This film is like deliberately nodding at them a lot. Uh, I'm actually going to play a clip that kind of um, shows it. So, you know, Boogie has that scene um, where he's like, what are you going to do to Santa right here? You're joking. I can't believe my ears. Would someone shut this fella up? I'm drowning in my tears. It's funny. I'm laughing. You really are too much. And now, with your permission, I'm going to do my stuff. What are you going to do? I'm going to do the best I can. Whoa! That is actually like a direct nod to a Betty Boop cartoon, um, Old Man of the Mountain. You know, Oogie was sort of modeled after like Cab Calloway, who did a lot of the Betty Boop cartoons. And if you go back and watch this cartoon, one of the things you'll notice is like in the background of this Betty Boop cartoon, there's all of these like trees with skulls in them and creepy faces and monsters in the back. And it is very reminiscent of like what Henry Selleck is just going to run with when he makes this movie. And you'll hear that line again. You've got to learn my song. i got to learn your song. If you do me wrong. I'm gonna do you wrong. you got to kick the gong to catch along with me. What you gonna do now? Gonna do the best I can. This is part of the beauty, I think, of combining animation and musicals. You know, like, two forms of creative expression that can just have creatures that walk like nothing else on earth, you know, and say things that we would be too embarrassed to say and express kind of like fear and lust and all sorts of things. 
And they just ask you, the audience, buy into this. Please buy into this and we can go and have so much fun together. And I think that's, to make this a full circle, what we're saying is, I don't know if we could tell this journey as a straight up story without these songs and music because it is such an internal journey. And maybe musicals allow us to explore a harsher truth, an emotional truth about ourselves, right? Because it's often the things that we don't reveal to anyone else that we struggle with the most. And by having someone sing it, we don't have to have clunky exposition. We can allow ourselves to go deeper. And yes, on the surface, it's cool looking. These characters are great. It's funny. It's weird. And it's a Christmas or a holiday movie with great songs. And you can enjoy it on that level. But when you look beneath it all, it is telling a much more complex story. And I think Pixar has been really good at figuring out how to do that without music, you know, with something like Inside Out and creating these mechanisms of explaining a much larger idea through a different world, like Ratatouille. You know, it's like there are these ways that they are able to plumb the depth of human emotion with in a, a real way without reverting to song. But I think that's very hard to do to get this level of thought, this level of uh, conflict you know, without having a musical. Because there, there are reasons why I think It's a Wonderful Life has been turned into a musical. Because there are these moments where you could open up into song and get a little bit deeper into everything else. I, I mean, it truly is a movie that I really like. I don't know if I'm going to be buying all the merch for it. And I get why people do buy all the merch for it. My brother-in-law is obsessed with this movie and he had a legitimate freak out when he met Jack at Walt Disney World uh, a couple of years ago um, as if Jack was the Jack from the movie. But um, the guy was actually very good uh, in the costume. But I think that there is something about this that connects to people and they may not even know why it connects to people. But I think it is this longing for changing something, getting out of something. It's, it, it is embracing that idea of wanting to wanting more and not feeling bad about it and then figuring out how to bring it in. Yeah. And, and to Burton himself, it was, I think him trying to take culture a half step closer to appreciating death, you, you know, like mm-hmm. he likes to talk about how we as a culture not only do we not like to scare our kids, we don't like to scare them with thoughts about death. And he thinks that that's important. Um, that's Burton on death. As a parent who is dealing with that right now with my own kids and living through this pandemic, it's an interesting idea. Like what, what happens when we die and, and kids can really get to the heart of the matter and think about things in ways that, you know, that we don't. And I don't think we need to make it scary. And these kids have been so scared, you know, for this last year with the pandemic and, you know, are they going to get the virus if they touch something or if they take off their mask? It, it's such a, a scary time that I, I wonder if we're going to be producing more Tim Burton's in our future only because these kids have been forced to confront a very scary thing at a very early age. And I think a lot of us are lucky to be a little bit more removed from it until we get older. So it it is it is interesting to see how you can make this a more 
socially acceptable thing. I mean, because a lot of our favorite films, you talk about Star Wars, these iconic films, you know, or even Wizard of Oz involve, you know, a main character dying or leaving. It's like we like these are the movies that like death is a rite of passage and it's put into our films a lot. But here death is your or darkness and weirdness is is at the forefront where sometimes I think it's like an element in a much larger, maybe uh, color coded story. Yeah. And yet without being a defensive dark and dark and weirdness, not like it's yes. okay to be dark. It's just like dark happens. And by the <laughs> way, this movie wanted to be even darker in certain points. Uh, they have a moment where kids were playing ice hockey and the head that they were using as a puck was supposed to be Tim Burton's face. But uh, I guess they realized that Tim Burton <laughs> would not take kindly to that. Or, or, or like originally when the clown with the tearaway face tears away his face, he was going to reveal like a bloody, disgusting skull face. Oh, just Di- like Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And Disney was like, you can't do that. That's too much. So then they just made him <laughs> I love that. You know, Amy, we really kind of unpacked this movie in a way that I didn't quite expect from production to thematic elements. We got in there deep. But what was the initial reaction? We know it wasn't a hit when it came out or wasn't this giant explosion at the box office. Like, What were the reviews? The critical reviews were actually really, really great. Um, there are only a few negative ones I could find. One of them, once again, from my beloved Owen Gleiberman, who was then at the time writing for Entertainment Weekly. This is what he wrote. The latest of Burton's sad sack, eternal adolescent outcasts, Jack lives in Halloween Town, a fabulously gnarled horror movie underworld that suggests a Dr. Seuss dreamscape as re- redesigned by Hieronymus Bosch. Is Jack... The all-talking, all-singing death boy, too grotesque a hero for children? Not really. Kids have always loved macabre fantasy and gross-out humor. The real question is whether he's a charming enough apparition for kids or adults. As we stare into Jack's empty eyes and listen to his blandly incongruous, nice animated guy voice, there's nothing to hook into. No personality. No spark. He's a technical achievement in search of a soul. And so is the movie. I'm not sure I've ever seen a fantasy film that's at once so visually amazing and so emotionally dead. None of the little monsters ever become characters. They're more like animated extras. And the movie, for all its virtuosity, has been thought out in terms of design rather than gags. In place of the inspired hell's a pop and slapstick of Burton's best movies, Nightmare provides a joyless frenzy of movement. When Jack slides down chimneys to deliver a series of demonic presents to horrified children, this prankishly subversive sequence lays bare what's so wrong with the rest of the film. The Nightmare Before Christmas is a fable in which the spirit of Christmas finally triumphs over that of Halloween. Yet it's clear that Burton's allegiance will always be with the ghouls, not the goody-goodies. Is it any wonder this nightmare never coalesces? He couldn't make up his mind whether to be naughty or nice. Interesting. I think... That was my opinion of it, too. I wanted more Beetlejuice instead of something that I think I appreciate a lot more as an adult than I did as a kid. Um, Because it did feel like, oh, this is cool looking, but I didn't attach myself to the plot when I first saw it. I don't know. I don't know what that that is, but I, I get that idea that they introduce so much. This world is so expansive. And we only kind of scratch the surface, but we don't need to scratch the surface. It's like we just, we don't need to do more than scratch the surface. We are following a journey, a very specific journey. It's not a movie about Halloween Town. It's a movie about a character who lives in Halloween Town. And and we get to see the world, but we don't need to like explain every part of it. I, I, I do like, I appreciate that more now. 
you know, I am curious. I wonder if Owen has softened on the movie a little bit. Like he's a dad now. I wonder if this right. has become one of his favorite movies to show his kids or if his kids have latched onto it in any kind of way that has made him watch it enough that he realizes that I don't think Christmas does triumph over Halloween. They coexist. Yeah. And I think that they, that's how they bring it together. I, I, in many ways, I think that the idea is you can bring a little bit of Christmas to Halloween. You can bring a little bit of Halloween to Christmas. And maybe the idea is that we can all coexist. We don't have to be separate. I keep on changing what I think the moral of this movie is, but the idea that why are we all in separate trees? Why do we all live in our own worlds? You know, we're talking about a, you know, a country, you know, that's incredibly polarized. I believe this, I believe that. And we all stand on our own sides, but maybe there's a world where we can all merge together. Maybe that's the lesson this movie teaches. I don't know. And I got to say, if we're talking about sending a movie up to the aliens, one thing that I'm going to take in heavy consideration here is the fact that this is the first fully stop motion animated film. So that's from a technical standpoint, amazing. I don't think we have many musicals, but it's a very different musical. It's a very uh, different type of film than we've ever done. I, I, I think for those reasons, it puts it definitely in the maybe and leaning towards yes pile for me right now. Interesting, but we have a lot of musicals left to explore, my friend. Yes, and we do. Actually, I think the next one up at bat is also about divided worlds and mm. how can we come together. And that movie is none other than a, immediately out of the box, one of the most requested musicals, Grease. I will tell you this never watched that movie. What? Never watched it. Never have seen the full Grease. I've seen parts, never have seen the full Grease. Well, you're about to get full grease, man. Although I did watch a majority of the live Fox telecast of it, which was amazing for so many different reasons. But um, I know the songs, but I've never started it at the top and finished it at the end, much to the surprise and shock of Molly and Josh. And I'm sure if Devin was here, he'd be also shocked. Amy, I tell you, I live a, a weird life. I'm not running to the get these musicals. This is a... Uh, Grease is another one that, and like everyone loved Grease. Everyone wanted to, when we worked at Blockbuster, put on Grease, put on Grease. I was like, no, thank you. Uh, and uh, so that's that. I can't wait. I can't wait to <laughs> pop it in. Oh, wow. Molly says she's seen it 200 times. Oh my God. Well, Paul, I feel like we're going to enter a really fun miniseries. You and me I here. can't wait. You're really making me look back at musicals. All right. So next week, Grease, take a listen to the trailer. Grease, the Broadway smash that made theatrical history by becoming one of the longest-running musical comedies of all time, breaks loose on the motion picture screen. John Travolta, the sensational star of Saturday Night Fever, ignites the screen in Grease. Does it all with Olivia Newton John in her motion picture debut. I'm a 
cheer up. Uh, hit me from Kanicki's like a Hallmark card. You pig. I love it when you talk dirty. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John explode across the motion picture screen in Greece. A movie filled with more song, more dance, more of everything that makes a great musical unforgettable. John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John together for the first time in Greece. You know, Paul, there's something I've always wanted to say to you. What? Nice work, Bone Zaddy. Oh, boy. Whoa. All right, I'll take it. Uh, Grease is available wherever you get your movies streaming. And also just a shout out to tpublic.com where we have some of our merch. So go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled and you can check out the latest merch that we have in the stores uh, like our brand new Brom t-shirt. So check it out. There are big sales coming up as the holidays approach each shirt, sticker, or mug cozy is made to order. That's all for today's show. And remember to rate and review this show. Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group, that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right, go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 